We've been talking about listening to Jesus, and we're going to do that just now as I read the Bible. The first reading is from the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. We're at chapter 4. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so, they will, so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. The New Testament reading comes from the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. We're starting at chapter 17 at verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Look, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognise him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. I suppose... That everyone who encountered Jesus in the course of his uh, public ministry may have known that he was special. Um, for those that have been healed by him, very special indeed. Uh, they experienced his power close up and at first hand, although of course not uniquely because there were uh, plenty of other miracle workers going, some of whom we meet in the Acts of the Apostles, and also not permanently because sooner or later, like most of us, those people who Jesus healed got sick and declined and died. 
But I wonder whether for many, uh, perhaps even including the disciples, Jesus would have been fairly ordinary. He ate and he drank, he toileted and he slept like anyone else. He laughed, he cried, he got angry, he got tired, he walked and talked in an entirely recognisable way. Well, today we return to the Gospel of Matthew, as Megan mentioned. As it happens, uh, we looked at chapters 15 and 16 uh, right in the middle of last year, just as we were coming out of lockdown. And here we are again in Matthew as we continue in lockdown now for a second time. And we're at a crucial hinge point in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, Miraculously revealed to him not by flesh and blood, but by the Father, Peter got Jesus. Peter understood who Jesus was. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus spoiled it all by getting all negative and pessimistic. From that time on, from that time on, now that Peter's got it, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day, be raised. Now, you may remember that this was not to Peter's liking at all. In fact, as far as he was concerned, this was the opposite of being the Messiah. And he tells Jesus to buck up and stay positive. And in response, Jesus is firm to the point of being fierce. Peter has no idea about the way God does things. All he can see is human things, earthly methods, unworthy means. Now, Jesus knows that the path of the Messiah is through the valley of the shadow of death, all the way into darkness. And the very next thing that happens is that Jesus takes this same Peter, along with the other two in Jesus' close inner circle, James and John, up for a mountaintop experience, where they get to see behind all the appearances to what is really there, where the curtain is pulled back and light and clarity shine for just a moment. And we see the truth about destiny, about mission, and about pattern. Six days later, chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Big things happen on mountains in the Bible. Moses met with God on Mount Sinai amidst the cloud and the thunder and the glory. Elijah battled with the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And Jesus was crucified on a hill outside Jerusalem, the place of the skull. And as we'll see, all three of those other mountaintop experiences are relevant here. What's happening on this mountain? Jesus is transfigured. Literally in the original language, he is metamorphosed. He was changed in his appearance. His true colours were revealed. And they are the colours of glory. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white. And he's joined by two of the central heroes in Hebrew history. Moses, the giver of the law. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. Now, on the one hand, you might say that this is uh, the demonstration of the divinity of Jesus, that he shares in the divine glory of God. And of course, it's true that Jesus is the divine. He is 
one from all eternity with the Father. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. All of that is true. But I don't think it's the main point here and for two reasons. The first that is, uh, is that in Luke's account of the transfiguration, uh, Moses and Elijah are shining in glory as well. And they certainly aren't divine. But more importantly, Jesus has actually already talked about exactly this sort of thing. Back in chapter 13, verse 43, when Jesus is teaching about the great separation that the Son of Man brings between the wheat and the weeds, he says that all the weeds, what he describes as the causes of sin and all evildoers, will be condemned, but the righteous will, and listen to it, shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's the promise that Jesus makes for all who believe in him. And especially all who hear the words of the kingdom and understand and bear fruit for God. In other words, I, I don't think that the transfiguration is primarily a revelation of the divinity of Jesus, although it is, of course, true that Jesus and the living and true God are of one being. It's actually a revelation of the humanity of Jesus, or rather the humanity of all people who will be taken up to the glory of the kingdom of God. This is what we were created for, what we see here on the mountain. This is what we were designed in the beginning for, to walk and talk with the Holy Lord. And this is what humanity in Jesus will be restored to. This is our destiny. What we see here. What Peter and James and John see here. Far more immediately relevant to us even than seeing Jesus' divinity. This is seeing our humanity. Our glorified humanity. Our future. The destiny of humanity is not to fade out in the heat death of the universe or even be consumed by a rapidly mutating novel coronavirus. It's for your face to shine like the sun. That's you. Because that is the intensity of your glory. Which leads to the second point. How do we get there from here? Mission. Because the one thing that's perfectly obvious about this world and about you and I is that they are not terribly glorious, that we are not really fit for purpose yet, perhaps never more obvious than as we battle with lockdown. It's a commonplace of biblical thought that no one can come as is into the presence of the holy God and live. Certainly Moses knew that all too well. The glory of God is too heavy for us. It's too intense when it, when it comes into contact with inglorious creatures instead of enhancing them, it crushes them. Uh, it's actually not that difficult to get a hold of. Uh, don't try it, right? Don't try it. But if you just for a few seconds, you look directly into the sun, it will burn your eyes out. You just can't handle its glory. It's simply too intense for you. You're not yet made of stern enough stuff. And you know this at a personal level as well. You, 
You may think that you're reasonably smart or even kind until you come into the presence of someone who really is super smart or genuinely sacrificially kind. And then you realise just how small and feeble you are. And, and that can be actually not an inspiring experience. It can be a crushing one. Interestingly, the disciples, or at least Peter, are not completely awestruck at the point of the transfiguration itself. In, in fact, Peter, in uh, gloriously characteristic fashion, blots out that he will set up a couple of tents, uh, maybe to prolong the experience. You know, it's like saying at the party, we don't really need to go yet, do we? Let's, let's have another drink. Wouldn't you do the same thing if you had an opportunity to enjoy afternoon tea with Moses? Hey, now, look, Moses, I've, I've got a couple of questions. What was it really like up there on the mountain? And did you think about it when you smashed the stone tablets with the commandments? Were you worried what the heritage people would say? And so on. So let's build some tents. It's only when God himself appears on the scene that the disciples get really afraid. Verse 5. When he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. You see, right there is the crucial moment. The glory cloud envelops them all, and the disciples know that they cannot stand in the presence of the glory of God. Our being can't bear his being. And so they go from bravado to terror. They fall to the ground. They're overcome by fear and rightly so. They're sinners. They have no place standing on this holy ground. They know they're going to die. God has turned up. But what happens? They don't die. That's the astounding thing. They don't die, and they don't die because of the decisive event. Jesus intervenes. God's own Son, the Beloved, with whom he is well pleased, sent by God to reconcile us sinners to a holy God, verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Jesus touches them, perhaps takes them by the hand and brings them to their feet. His touch is what sinful humans desperately, desperately need to make them fit for God. Jesus has just said that the path that he must tread is the way of the cross. And in fact, as scholar Tom Wright points out, the scene of the transfiguration offers a strange parallel and contrast to the crucifixion scene just a few weeks later. Here on the mountain, Jesus is revealed in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem, Jesus is revealed in shame. Here, his clothes are shining white. There, his clothes have been stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here, he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes. There, he is flanked by two terrorists, insurgents, 
Here, a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There, darkness comes upon the whole land. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There, he's hiding in shame after night, denying that he even knows Jesus. Here, a voice from God himself declares that this is his wonderful beloved son. There, a pagan soldier declares in surprise that this really was God's son. Do, do you see what's going on? The mountaintop explains the hilltop and the hilltop explains the mountaintop. On the hilltop of Calvary, Jesus dies. But more than that, he lost his glory. The one who is in very nature God loses his beauty, his invulnerability, the glory, the power, the immensity. It's all set aside. Jesus bears in himself the destructive weight of the glory of God upon him. Stripped of glory. So that inglorious sinners like Peter and James and John and you and I can share the glory of God and live like on that mountaintop. We only really understand either of them when we see them side by side with each other. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who truly is the anointed Son of God who will save his people and give them glory, which is precisely why he must lose his glory and go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering and be killed and on the third day rise again. Which leads to the third and final point, you see, so must we. Verse 7. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. It's, it's simple, really, isn't it? In fact, it's, it's a bit too simple. We have so many questions, so much confusion, such deep challenges in our lives, decisions, relationships, work, coping, and ultimately death. And, and it's not like the disciples weren't in the same boat. They had left everything for Jesus. And now he's talking about going into the enemy's heartland and dying on a cross, and they know enough to know that where the master is, there is every likelihood that the disciples will be there too. And the living and true God, creator and sustainer of all that is, says, do you want to know how to navigate your way through life? Do you want to know how to navigate your way through death? Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. As the uh, prayer that uh, we have in our prayer books, what's called the Collect for the second Sunday in Advent, puts it, read, mark, learn, inwardly digest the words of Jesus given to us in Holy Scripture, that encouraged and supported by them, we may always hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life. Listen to him. Listen to him. And of course, listen doesn't mean listen the way we listen to a safety announcement on an aeroplane. You might remember those things from uh, years gone by. Listen in the Bible always means take deep into your heart and mind and soul and strength and obey. If he is the glory of God, then that can't be a part-time, half-strength 
unlettered kind of thing. So often people try to live kind of in the middle there. But there's no integrity in that. It, it absolutely always is only an all or nothing thing with the transfigured Jesus. And that includes even in the really hard times, the times of pain and darkness, the times that are the opposite of glory. Even in those times, the Father says, listen to him with patience. Patience because there's more to come. That's the point of the strange little conversation that Jesus and the disciples have on their way down the mountain. Jesus says to wait a little while before telling people about what's happened, but they want to know the timetable. How long? What order? When does the announcer come? And Jesus tells them that in one sense, the true Elijah figure has already come. The, the one who will restore all things, or rather the one through whom God will restore all things, the one through whom God will transfigure everything into glory. But notice what Jesus says, what, what, what happened when the true Elijah turned up? They don't recognise him. They don't know him from a bar of soap and they treat him whatever way they want. With contempt and disdain and ultimately with the cross. But the resurrection will confirm that glory is the other side of darkness. In other words, you see, Jesus says, don't worry about the timetable. That's above your pay grade. What is for us to know is that as it goes for the Son of Man, so it will go for us. And so don't be surprised when it's hard. Hard from those around us, hard from the sin within us. Jesus says his people should be the least surprised and the most resilient when times are hard. But this moment is a moment of encouragement, you see, because there's a sense in which Jesus is Clark Kent just for a moment. However, we see the Superman that he really is. His glory is hidden. Although it's actually even more complicated than that. His glory is at work precisely in his hiddenness, in the cross. And that means that in our darknesses, God's glory can be at work as well. And so we can be patient because there's more to life than is meeting the eye. There is transfiguration to come. Let's draw these threads together. The first challenge this incident brings to us, uh, I think, is simply this. Make sure you have truly seen who Jesus is. As uh, one author put it many years ago, he's more than a carpenter. For that matter, he's more than a great moral teacher. He's more than a towering leader. He's more than a great example. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And make sure that you see him, you know him, you worship him as nothing less than that. And second, listen to him. I'm going to take this a little bit further because we have to ask the question, what specifically should we listen to Jesus say? Well, 
The thing that Jesus says, the instruction that he gives to which God himself tells us specifically to pay attention, the, the thing which is between the confession of Peter and the transfiguration, right? Jesus' words, it's the great invitation of Jesus. Chapter 16, verse 24. You know what to listen to Jesus about? It's listen to this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and to take up their cross and to follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Here is what Jesus says. Listen to it. Specifically, pointedly, appallingly, God tells those first three disciples and us disciples scattered in our homes this morning, listen to this. That the only way of discipleship to Jesus is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. Just as the only way for Jesus to be the Messiah was to deny himself and to take up his cross. And as you rest in him, as you know his touch and the healing of your heart with those words of grace that lift you up and promise you hope, so more and more you can walk in his footsteps of denial of self and taking up of cross. You see, there is something fundamentally gracious about the nature of reality contrary to all appearances because God is at the heart of reality and God is a God of grace. And what that means is that if you, if you don't live a life yourself of grace, of putting others first, of serving others ahead of yourself, of expending your resources on others more than yourself. Well, it means that you've lost touch with your creator. It's just a fact, says Jesus, that those who want to save their lives lose it. Uh, C.S. Lewis once uh, put it this way, even in literature and art, no one who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring tuppence about how often it has been told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. Save your life, grab hold of it, hang on to it, and it will escape your grasp. Lose your life for the sake of Jesus. And you'll save it. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me, says Jesus. And the Father says, listen to him. And so where is the challenge of discipleship for you at the moment, this week? Where is the challenge of denying yourself? Where is the cross for you to take up? Where do you need the spiritual power of grasping in your heart that Jesus has gone all the way to dissolution under the weight of the glory of God so you can stand in the presence of the glory of God? At a personal level, is it some sin to which you're clinging on in this challenging time of lockdown? 
some delight that feeds the dark dark side of your desires. Perhaps it's a grudge that you carefully nurse, an unreconciled relationship. Perhaps it's just disinterest, sheer self-absorbed disinterest in anyone or anything else than your own coping. Sometimes letting go of these things can feel like a death, can't it? A genuinely cross-like experience. Know the touch of Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And then take up your cross and follow him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, loving Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah and Saviour, how we praise you as the glorious one, resurrected now, having walked in faithfulness all the way to death, even death on a cross. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that we would so deeply know your touch in our lives, that we do truly listen to you. That we believe you when you say that those who seek to save their their lives will lose it but that those who lose their lives for your sake will save it. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, fill us with your grace to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow you. And we ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen.